It's Thursday. It's a great Thursday because we have an amazing guest today, Scott Mounts, who is a inspirational keynote speaker who specializes in the areas of employee engagement, peak performance, fostering meaning in and at work, coaching, flourishing and change, motivation. He was a senior leader marketing manager at Procter & Gamble, and he saw an area of improvement in the management space. So that kind of influenced him to not only write his first book, but to get, eventually give uh, public speeches on, on, on things and what I just described. He also has a, a column on Inc.com where he has over 1 million monthly readers, um, talks about uh, success and leadership there. Um, in this interview, we, we get into his background, what kind of influenced him and motivated him to go be a, a public speaker, keynote speaker, um, as well as write his books. Um, we talk about the challenges he faced in kind of transitioning out of the work environment, um, the highlights of being an entrepreneur, um, talks about just his zero diva policy, what it means to be a good human being. So I liked what he said there. Um, and then he gives some public speaking tips on, and some great way to connect with an audience. So I thought it was a really cool interview. And Slager, what did you yeah, think about it? Yeah, this one was pretty sweet. And, uh, you know, I like you, we kind of each read his ink articles without knowing the other was reading them, oddly enough. And then we'd bring him up on, on the podcast and same writer. So this guy has a lot of good value. Just he's someone that, and I said this on, on Tuesday's podcast, we were kind of promoting the episode. So if you haven't listened to episode 109, check out iTunes at Off The Dome Radio. Um, so he, he just he's a man who you can tell he put a lot of uh, effort into his experience. So he got out a lot um, from everything he's done in life. And just because he put the work and the learning into being good at everything he's done, which gives him the proper experience to be a high-level speaker and coach, motivator, just influencer of all kinds, where he's he's got things down. He kind of understands the lay of the land and, excuse me, just a lot of good uh, nuggets in, in this episode where... He gives it straight, but it, it makes a lot of sense. So, again, he's learned how to navigate his own waters. He's creating his own uh, world and life and doing the things that he is meant and wanting to do. And he's done a lot of things to help himself get there. So, without further ado, may we introduce Scott Lutz. So Scott, I guess um, we're kind of interested in, in how we got here, your journey. Um, so like Tim said, we have the list of questions, but maybe if you want to start with a quick background of, of who you are, what you do, and then we'll kind of go from there. Yeah, sounds like, sounds like a plan. I'm, uh, I guess, first and foremost, you know, I'm a very happy father uh, with a, a kick-butt daughter who's uh, 17 years old, and uh, she keeps us very, very full. But I think your listeners are more interested in the professional side of my equation. I start with that because I always remember that that's the start and end of everything, right? Mm -hmm. Family, no matter what happens, mm -hmm. in business. So on the business side of the equation, I'm a, you know, really um, living my best life right now, guys, as an entrepreneur. I'm a former Procter & Gamble senior manager. I was blessed to run some of their very biggest multi-billion dollar businesses. And uh, in my last year of employ, uh, last couple of years of employ with them, I published my first book and it did, uh, it did well enough. It's called Make It Matter, How Managers Can Motivate by Creating Meaning. And I discovered that, okay, 
I might be actually pretty decent at this. And I had been, you know, talking and giving leadership talks for quite a while as part of my job at Procter and Gamble, and decided I can put these two things together and launch my own company, which I did uh, over four years ago now. So I'm uh, also a, uh, a writer, and as you know, you guys probably wouldn't have me on the show if I wasn't. I have a couple of books out, uh, both "Make It Matter" and uh, "Find the Fire." I've been very blessed that they've won. Uh, enough awards that I must be doing something right and sold enough <laughs> copies that I'm tricking enough people into the value. And right. uh, I also teach at Indiana university, uh, their, their Kelly school of business for executive education, where I teach meaning making leadership and the how to's of motivation. Uh, as you guys mentioned before you, you turned on the recording. I also have um, a popular column on Inc uh, with over, over um, one and a half million monthly readers where I write about a wide variety of topics that have to do with success, leadership, especially soulful leadership. And so I'm in a good space right now with uh, the mixture of doing keynotes and workshops and coaching one-on-one -on -one for people and uh, writing books, tons of keynotes, and uh, lots of columns and producing and creating a lot of content. So it's created a very a fulfilling life as I'm trying to fulfill my mission here. Mm -hmm. That, that's a great journey. A lot, a lot of good stuff there. And when we learned about who you are, we were, we were very excited to have you on because I'm sure you got a lot of interesting experiences to share. Um, starting at like Procter & Gamble, I read, was it kind of the marketing space you were in? Yeah, that's there? right. Okay. Marketing okay. and general management. Yeah, that's okay. right. Okay, cool. And how long were you there for? I was at P&G for uh, 24 years. And at okay. P&G, um, there's a you know marketing track. And as you grow up and move up the chain, it rolls itself into general management. And mm -hmm. so a lot of the people that are, you know, that run big parts of businesses come from the marketing function at P&G. So I had a chance to really grow my chops in marketing, a lot of exposure to sales because that's the nature of that job and that function, mm -hmm. as well as a lot of general management in how to run a business in general, P&L experience. Okay. So do you want to describe the moment when you realize, hey, I want to write a book? Like what did that moment look like? What were some of the, the cornerstones behind the book that, that allowed you to write it, some of the concepts? Yeah, really good question. Um, I would say, you know, I can, almost, uh, I can almost remember the day, to be honest with you, that I decided to, to write the book. Uh, you know, I'm very blessed to have worked at a great company, and, and Procter & Gamble is many things to many people. It's, it's a really wonderful company. Like many companies, it has its, you know, underbelly and its flaws, and and I remember realizing that the type of manager I wanted to be wasn't matching up with, with the way things were working out at Procter & Gamble. And I started to ask around, well, okay, it might be just a particular business situation I'm in in Procter, and it's not the whole company, and for sure it's not the whole company. And I found myself in one particularly really nasty business situation where I wasn't being freed up to be the kind of leader that I wanted to be. And I said, there's got to be a better way. And I wonder how alone or not I really am. I started doing research and I found a, a pretty stunning fact that catapulted the whole thing. An astonishing 70%, 70% of the average worker in the United States can be coded as disengaged in their job. 70%. And I, I couldn't believe it. I'm like, that can't be right. That can't be right. And so I started to do research and I found out, lo and behold, not only is it right, it's getting worse. They keep measuring it. It's not getting any better. And so the things we think that work, like perks and promotions and pay, we're sadly mistaken. 
they're not what sustains our motivation over the long haul. None of those things are. And the more I realized it, I was like, my gosh, there's no real solution out there. We're just regurgitating the same solutions and the problem's not getting any better. And that's not my opinion. It's data. So I started asking around at other companies. Uh, I started doing more and more research. And I uh, started speaking in more and more places. I started speaking outside of Procter & Gamble, uh, for, at first for free, then for, for pay, always asking the audiences afterwards, describe your work environment to me. And I couldn't believe the amount of people that agreed with, yeah, that statistics shouldn't surprise you, and here's why. And the answer more often was not in some way, shape, or form, uh, Tim and Colin, was that the meaning in the job had been lost. The rat race had caught up. They were too busy uh, trying to play organizational politics. People had lost their soul, and uh, they weren't winning in the way that they wanted to win in the workplace. And I thought, there has got to be a better way. And that started the journey. Uh, the day I found that statistic, 70% are disengaged. And I said, I can't rest with that. I've got to contribute to a solution. And I began uh, what, to what ended up being five years of research, intense research, and, and, and process in writing the book, and five years writing my first book. Mm -hmm. And then by the time it published, uh, it was a couple of years left at P&G. And then I realized I need to spread what I've learned uh, with the rest of the world. Great. That's incredible. <clears throat> oh, God. That's uh, um, pretty cool that you know what it was that kickstarted that and, and the feeling because that's, that's really it, right? It is the feeling of the thing that drives it. Okay, there is more to it than this. Uh, and I think that's where a lot of people struggle. That's where Tim and I started our podcast journey was, okay, there's more to it than this. Like it's not just clock in, everyone hates their lives, uh, you clock out. Um, so when you started, uh, when you did release the book, you said you were already a couple years left. And then so uh, by, by that time, what were some of the key things that you had learned already where it sparked you to say, okay, I need another one because there's more to it. So what were some key things that you learned in those couple of years uh, shortly after leaving where it's like, all right, now this is it. Like this is more than I need to drop. Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, the first book is all about um, establishing meaning as the, as the motivator of our times. Uh, and you guys, I'm guessing your millennial age. Um, mm -hmm. Millennials are driving this more than ever that uh, millennials are looking for more than a paycheck. They're looking for a sense of purpose in their work and a sense of meaning. I need a profound why to my work. It's not enough to tell me because if you work hard, I'll get promoted. That's not the way it works anymore, not even amongst baby boomers. And as I, as I began to dig into that, I found something very interesting, guys, that yet another, you know, just kind of an amazing truth. I found that when, even when organizations kind of figure it out and they're humming along relatively well, something pretty amazing happens, uh, amazing in quotes and not in a good way, which is that the vast majority of us, when we become, you know, we get to the state where you're walking around amongst walking zombies, 70% disengaged, you got to wonder, well, how'd you get there? Because when you started in your job, it, things were good, right? You, everything's interesting. There's a chance to learn every day. You feel like anything's possible. Who knows where I can go in this company? So I, I wanted to figure out the gap between, okay, we now know 70% are disengaged and meaning is bereft in most companies. How the hell did it end up there? Because so many people started 
from being motivated. And I backtracked and I traced that journey. What I discovered was very interesting, which is that when people start out and they're motivated, what happens over time is inspiration drains begin to settle into the workplace. And we don't, we don't even realize it's happening. And then finally, we ask ourselves one day, oh, my God, I am so uninspired in my job. How did it happen? I, I have no idea. How am I going to fix it? And so what do people do? They try to fix it themselves. And they say, well, you know what? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to just think of what inspires me, and I'm going to try to do more of that. It doesn't work that way, man. It doesn't work that way because what's the problem with that? Think of, you know, what inspires you guys? It's different for everybody. For some people, it's a sunset. For other people, it's a brilliant leader. It's a, an amazing quote, a, a, a beautiful painting. It's different for everybody. So trying to pinpoint it is, is elusive, and it gets repressed. Even when you figure out, like, well, God, what would inspire me is a great leader with a great vision. Okay, what if you don't have that? And then if you do find it, it can get repressed by our own debilitating hangups. And so I realized, holy moly, what's happening here is when we're uninspired, we're asking ourselves, God, how do I get more inspired? I'm going to go look for more of that. And that's the wrong question to be asking. For decades, we've been asking the wrong question. What we should be asking is how did I lose my inspiration in the first place? Because the truth is when you ask that question, you understand how it started to evaporate. And you understand, holy moly, there are forces that have been draining my inspiration from day one quietly, and I didn't even realize it. Things like fear in the workplace. Things like inundation. I'm totally overwhelmed. Things like boredom. I stopped learning and growing four years ago, and I just accepted. I effectively quit and stayed, which a lot of people do if they're 70% disengaged. So, so Tim and Colin, what I realized was like, holy moly, all these inspiration drains have settled in, and people aren't even aware that it's happened to them until one day they look back, and they're not really sure why they're so miserable in their jobs. So the second book, Find the Fire, was about that journey from how did I start out inspired to inspired to the 70% you know, uninspired and disengaged. Mm -hmm. And it traces that journey and it identifies the root causes. Okay. And, and with your research, did you find any one point within like the average person's career where that started to dwindle? Were there any, anything that jumped out to you where it's like, Oh, it's after, you know, this much time roughly or these circumstances. Did you find anything like that? Interestingly enough, after the first promotion, it tends to accelerate because people realize uh, it's what the social scientists call the promotion paradox. They're working hard, waiting their turn in line to get promoted. And then when they get promoted, they realize that what they thought would make them happier, the promotion, in truth, takes them farther away from that which makes them happy. Hmm. So they begin to look for happiness offsets in their life, the promotion paradox. That remains statistically true, whether it's your first promotion or your fifth promotion. But it's worse. We saw a data trend that it gets worse after people think like things are going to get better when people report to me, when I have more responsibility, a bigger office, more money, a bigger title, greater power. They discover that's not necessarily the truth. And in fact, for some people, the closer they get to the top and the more power they get, the farther they get away from true happiness. Mm. So we found that to be a, a breaking point for many. Okay. Looking at it from a leadership aspect, like what can like managers, directors, people that like that are in that position do to create an environment that is engaging for like, I'm talking about like the people who 
like the, the lower level of employees, like employees that are maybe entry level, newer to the workplace, maybe like when you start to see that drop off, maybe a couple years into the job, what can the people above them do to create that type of environment that keeps them engaging from a leadership standpoint? Fantastic question, Tim. And it goes back to uh, what I outlined in my first book, Make It Matter, which is there are in place what are called the markers of meaning. There are conditions that leaders can foster to create meaning in and at work to counter exactly what you're talking about. And I'll just hit a few of them. Yeah, I don't want to Especially, give too many away. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't read the, We want people to read the book. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's all good, though. I, I, hopefully they'll be intrigued enough, but, yeah. you know, it's all good. The... Uh, some of the most powerful ones, especially to your question for frontline employees is first of all, creating a sense of purpose in their work, a profound why, which often can come from as simple as a discussion with the employee to determine what are your core values? What are your superpowers? What are you trying to accomplish? What is bigger than you that you want to be a part of? What's the real reason you're doing this job? Who really benefits behind this job? And you would be surprised, Tim, how many people, no matter how low in the organization they are, can benefit from that? I did a, a keynote not so long ago to, a, uh, of all things, a parking lot company hired me to talk to a couple hundred of their parking lot attendants. Mm-hmm. Now, if I can help these people find meaning in work, I can probably help anybody. Mm-hmm. And what they discovered is simply understanding their core values, um, that Many of them wanted to turn the menial magical. They wanted to find some small spark in their day of something as mundane as a parking lot attendant. If I could find a way to give somebody a smile, to show them I'm attacking my job with energy, to inspire them, a seemingly boring job with energy, if I could do some small act of kindness for them, it'll come out of nowhere to them because I'm just a, just a parking lot attendant. Mm-hmm. It gives them a sense of purpose. Mm-hmm. Imagine doing that now for someone with a slightly more meaningful job. It's really, really powerful when you can frame that up. So a sense of purpose is one. I'll give you another one or two. Helping them, the employees discern um, how they're going to learn and grow again. There may be nothing more meaningful than employees that feel like they're learning and growing. And yet, guess what? Senior managers, it's one of the first things they blow off, right? I've, uh, oh, yo, we got sales quarter end, guys. We got the uh, CEO coming into town for a meeting. We've got a big customer call with Target. Guess what? Training is off. We need to focus on delivering the numbers. Seems right in the moment. What message does it send? Your learning and growth is not important. Hitting the numbers is. Avoiding things like that and creating intentional learning and growth opportunities and putting them on a pedestal is another really powerful way. And then one last one I'll give you is um, autonomy. You know, let me ask you a question, Tim or Colin. Raise your hand if you guys like to be micromanaged. Go ahead, raise your hand. (laughs) Yeah, nobody does, Right. right? And when bosses can be brave and they can give away more work than they ever thought they'd be comfortable doing, when they can stop being so insecure that giving up the power means that they're not a leader, when in fact the opposite is true, and they can grant autonomy to employees, there are a few things more motivating and exhilarating to an employee than being able to accomplish the goals the way they want to. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's, it's just true. Thinking of the opposite of micromanaging, it's exhilarating, right? Mm-hmm. So there's three examples for you. I could go yeah. all day. Yeah, that's great. I like what you said about like learning and improvement. Cause like, I believe that there should be time budgeted every week, every day for employees to, to learn something that revolves around the job or the vision of the company that they're passionate about learning about. I think employees should always take that time and there should be 
time for that. I think that helps with the culture. So well said, well said. And, and going off some of the culture, when we were kind of learning more about you, we saw your no uh, your zero diva policy. <laughs> uh, is that something every company should have? Uh, you want to touch on that real quick because we we loved it because we we talk on the show a lot about. You know, you can do a lot of things, but being a good human being only takes a little bit of extra effort and it gets you a long, long way. No matter what you do, where you're at, being a good human will get you further than a lot of things. Yeah, that's that's so true, Colin. And in the context that you saw it on my website, you know, what I was saying was, um, you know, there's people out there that hire people like me to speak. They're called uh, meeting planners, meeting managers. And they'll call up some of these highfalutin speakers that tend to have egos and uh, some of them. And then what they'll get is diva like behavior sometimes. Oh, okay. I can come in and speak on that day, but I need the following eight things. And I, you know, I need my microphone just so, and I want green M&Ms in the showroom and you know, <laughs> they're, they're divas. And uh, I believe in the opposite of that. You know, you have to look at enabling other people to do their job better. Leadership is not about you. It's about them. And I think you've drawn a good parallel, Colin, is, you know, I use that term in the context of, hey, if you want to hire me as a keynote speaker, there's zero diva in me. I'm going to be 100% easy to work with. You're not managing an ego. You're not managing a talent. No matter how many books I've written or how many million people follow me, you're not managing a diva. I think it applies to the workplace, too. I mean, you made the connection, and I think you're right. We get too many diva-like behaviors. It doesn't show up like movie star behavior, but you get diva behavior in different ways, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I should be promoted even though I've only been here for one year, you know? I should get this. I should get that, right? And there's, there's no place for that in the workplace. Like you said, it doesn't take that much effort to be a good human being. And yet, crazily enough, if you are, it's a differentiating factor for the most part in many workplaces today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, M Mark Cuban said like a top skill that's kind of overlooked in business is just simply being polite and just <laughs> like saying, please and thank you. Like he's saying, like it's such a small overlooked thing that we don't think about, but it separates a lot of people in business from other people just by being a good human. It's so true. And I think he's, you know, I think he's proven himself monetarily. You know, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's done all right. I mean, he's got a at least, at least going. Yeah. yeah. At least monetarily. Yeah. yeah who knows? Yeah. yeah. Um, we did, yeah. So you, you talked a little bit about your speaking engagements. We definitely want to hit on that a little bit because public speaking is a pretty, pretty big passion of mine too. I actually, when I was a sophomore in college, I took a speech for business class and I read a book called The Articulate Executive. Ever since that class, I was, I was just super into public speaking. So you want to just explain like how you eventually got into that, your transition to that, and I mean maybe some public speaking tips that you could provide, things that oh, sure. have allowed you to be successful in that. Realm. Yeah, I'll give you just a few. I mean, gosh, that's like a three-hour podcast in and of itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The art science of the keynote. We I do part twos with people. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's yeah. right. That's right. That's exactly right. Uh, I got into it, uh, guys, because I, as part of my leadership roles at Procter & Gamble, you know, you're, you're communicating all the time. Mm -hmm. um, one, one of my CEOs at P&G, once upon a time, A.G. Laffley, once said that a CEO's job is 90% communication. Mm -hmm. And most people would be like, oh, come on. Like baloney. You got to worry about strategy. You got to worry about vision. You got Wall Street to handle on conference call. Blah, 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 blah. All that's true. 90% is communication. Uh, I found that to be true as a leader. Um, and so you have to give a lot of talks. You have to rally the troops. You have to have a lot of vision. You have to learn how to use personal power, not just position power. And personal power comes through your ability to communicate effectively. 
So I started developing that skill and giving a lot of speeches, and then I found that I really liked it. And so I started experimenting at P&G, you know, probably, oh gosh, 15 years ago, creating, you know, for lack of a better word, extracurricular talks, mm -hmm. things that weren't part of my day job, but just things I wanted to share with, the, with organizations, you know, uh, the art and science of being a top rated employee, how to really, really, really flourish in times of change, you know, mm -hmm. how to really, what's the secret to the highest performing organizations? And I developed these keynotes and just started giving them. Um, outside, showing up at, you know, luncheon meetings uh, at work, um, at different group uh, exhibits. And, and next thing I know, people were telling me, dude, you like, you're pretty good at this. You got to keep going. And so I guess, <laughs> at least since I wasn't the worst one in the world at it, I thought, oh, I, I really get a lot of energy out of this. And I started building and honing and honing. And then one day I realized, wait a minute, I wonder if I can create revenue stream off of this. And so I started slow and small. You know, I did a couple of free talks through a local chamber of commerce. And then I did a paid talk for like, you know, a thousand bucks at a local company. And I used them as a sounding board uh, um, and said, you know, I'll even knock 500 bucks off if you'll give me 20 minutes afterwards of feedback of just thoughts <laughs> and, you know, and just brutal about myself. Like, what am I good? What am I not good at? Honing, honing, honing. And then, um, I realized I think I've got a saleable proposition here. And then I started do, doing it as a side hustle. And I started doing keynotes while I was still at P&G, okay. paid on the side during vacations. Hmm. You know, try selling that one to your wife, right? Like, <laughs> hey, can we, uh, you know, can we go to, uh, you know, Hawaii this year? Yeah, or, or to Camden, New Jersey. For, <laughs> yeah. Christmas so, uh, was extra good to her that day. Yeah, yeah, Christmas, <laughs> you got that right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So I you know, just started doing more of those and realized, okay, pretty good at this. And it, in um, being an entrepreneur in many businesses, you know, there's something called a flywheel, this big giant you know, wheel that turns the grist mill in, in flour mills. That's a flywheel. It's no different in business. You've got to start that big massive stone turning. And once it gets going, once it gets going and cranking and cranking and cranking, the flywheel's moving, momentum gains. That's the way it is in speaking. You do one speech, you do it well, they tell more people. You do it really well, they tell more people. And next thing you know, word of mouth is building up. And, um, and then it, it just kind of goes from there. You add a speaker's reel, you create a website, you keep refining your material over and over and over again, asking for feedback over and over again, finding out what people are interested in. Then one day when you're good enough, Maybe a speaker bureau reaches out to you. And uh, um, for your listeners that don't know what a speaker bureau is very quickly, they're companies that they get paid a percentage of your fees for speaking based on the fact that they got you the job. So they have all the connections. And so company X is like, uh, oh, we got this year's annual sales meeting. We should have a speaker. Where do we find one? Oh, I know. We'll call the National Speakers Bureau. Hey, guys, who do you have represented? And then if you're represented by somebody there, what, what are you looking for? Well, we're looking for this. Oh, I got just a guy for you. His name is Scott Mouts. He speaks on peak performance, employee engagement, creating meaning in the workplace, flourishing and change. Oh, that's a good fit. Boom, and off you go. And then it starts to build. But, but people are often disappointed that want to become professional speakers that think, okay, I got it. I just put a website together, and I announced to the world that I'm a speaker, and, they, you know, and the jobs roll in. And it, does, it doesn't work that way. Um, I would say 80% of the speaking jobs I got once I left Procter & Gamble uh, for the first uh, 18 months anyways were all from people that I knew at Procter & Gamble. Mm 
that either left the company and were in other companies or they brought me back into Procter & Gamble to speak in different places. So you got to build that ground network of supporters that'll get you started to get you enough quality speaking chances that you can create word of mouth. Um, I can give you a few quick tips. Uh, does that make sense? I want to make sure I'm not going. Yes. On yeah. hundred percent. That's, that's cool at. how you were able to, to utilize your existing network to, to get those speaking engagements. And that's how it works. Yeah. Most people wish it didn't. And, you know, writing books helps mm -hmm. uh, eventually. It helps you get a lot more speaking engagements. Yep. Just one or two. Like I could literally do a three hour talk on the art and science of uh, giving a good keynote. You know, one or two things that I'll give, maybe the most, some of the most valuable nuggets I have would be, you know, a great talk does not mean more. It means less. Less slides, less points to jam in, plenty of images, lots of mental images. A change in pace where you're talking and you're excited and you're passionate and your voice goes up in pitch <laughs> when you want to make a point and it slows down yeah. and it's quiet. When you want to get a point across that comes from the heart. Mm -hmm. So it's a, a, a mixture of tactics of how you learn to command the stage with visually, with the amount of visual presentation you give, which is not a lot of words, not a lot of slides, not a lot of points, visual imagery, with a change in voice diction, a change in pace, how you stand, how you move around, a change in energy to keep things interesting. And then I also think it's um, you have to weave in epiphanies. People have a high bar for when you're speaking. And what I try to do is for each talk, I usually have probably three or four epiphanies, pivotal moment, wow moments in the speech where people are like, oh, man, he's right. That's He's right. I got to do that. It should incite action, right? Good, good talks incite action. Not every talk, right? Some talks are for entertainment. You don't want them to do anything but laugh. Some are social in nature and you want to make a political statement and you want to enrage people. Others are, for the most part, your listeners are going to be people that want to influence and they want people to change their behavior. So if you have epiphanies woven into those, that's what makes the cut for a good call. And by epiphany, I mean it has to be an insight. It's not just good. It's so good mm -hmm. and so true, not just yeah. true. And that's the difference. And if you can do all of that and then uh, don't underestimate how many times you have to practice to be good, that's really important. You know, people always ask me, must be incredible, Scott. Now you just go on stage, you make all this money, and then you go on to the next town and you do it again and you make all this money. Guys, you want to know what? I've been given uh, – I have a, a core of five speeches that I give. One of the speeches I've given a keynote on, a, I don't know, 200 times. Different versions, I always tailor to the audience. I practice it four times every time before I go on stage, and I've given it 200 times. Mm, no. Never underestimate how prepared you have to be because what happens is you are not focused on what you're going to say next. You are focused on the emotions you're delivering in the moment, your body position. How is the audience reacting? Do you need to adjust on the fly and throw in a story you didn't think you were going to need? Is the audience connecting deeply? And if so, how can you elevate that? You get the point. You mm -hmm. don't want to be where ums and ahs and all the violations of classic speaking come in or when people are um trying um, 
to think of um, what I'm going to say next. Um, and you don't want any of that. It's a professional speaker. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's a couple of gems for it. I hope all that made sense and I hope I didn't go on too long. Yeah. No, that, that was awesome because, and I like that last one, especially my dad always told me the best, whatever you do from sports to speaking, the best prepared person wins. It's and, true. and I don't want to completely fire from the hip here, but um, I, I'm assuming, well, going to assume that the more prepared that you feel, Scott, like the less the nerves are present. Where yeah, that's, that's true. And, and it gets to a point where people always say, oh, my God, it's my greatest fear. I couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. You know? And what's the answer to every fear? You do it. Yeah. And then you get over it. Right? Okay, now, you know, all right, listen. If, if, am I a base diver? Like, you know, I, no matter how many times I, you know, cliff jumper, I, I could do it a thousand times and still be scared out of my mind. Yeah. Let's talk about like more manageable tasks in our lives. You know, the thing, even for people that have a fear of public speaking, um, Colin, you're, you're absolutely right that I promise you, you start small and you practice and you get bigger and you get bigger and you get bigger. Um, it never fully goes away. I mean, it shouldn't shock you to hear that I'm not, I don't really get nervous and scared in front of audiences. Gosh, if I do this for a living, but that said, I still feel a little bit nervous in a few seconds walking up. And here's why, because in your mind, you're like, is this going to be the one time my energy isn't going to be where I need it to be? Not, am I going to forget what I need to say? Because muscle memory kicks in, man. There's no chance if you practice enough, there's no chance you're going to forget. You just, just like, okay, am I going to deliver this to my best of ability? And what I've found is you allow that 20 seconds of fear and um, panic uh, in its worst form, more likely mild, like alert, the more uh, season you get. You allow that for the 20 seconds walking up to the stage and five words into your speech, it's already gone. Because hmm. ryth- you're already in the rhythm and you can already feel the crowd and you know like, oh, this is going to be a good day. Um, and luckily now, I don't really have any bad days. I only have, um, you know, where I don't feel like I gave it my all. You, you have days where you don't feel like you connected, but you're not nervous about that. Sometimes it just happens. The audience is distracted or whatever, but those are rare now. But right, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, and say for, for someone, I mean, you have a lot of experience under your belt uh, from P&G and coach. You're, you're a well-published author. Uh, for people that maybe they don't have – as much experience under their belt, but think, okay, I can deliver a good message and not just have it be regurgitated motivational stuff that you see everywhere. Uh, What can people do or what kind of credibility credentials would you recommend having that would be attractive to pay them to speak? Uh, uh, For pay, for the younger people that are starting. Yes. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, Knowing what you know, being an expert in what you – what I thought you were going to ask me is, you know, how do even the people that aren't, have been on stage before conquer their fear? Oh, we which, can get into that too. You know, which 10-second answer on that is always believe the audience is on your side mm-hmm. because they are. Nobody is sitting there waiting. I can't wait until Colin's on stage so I can throw tomatoes. <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> other, maybe, maybe Philadelphia Phillies fans do that. I don't know. <laughs> but – yeah. In the in the world of professional speaking, nobody does that. So yeah. once you know it's same side selling here, as my friend Ian Altman likes to say, once you know that, you're better off. Now, as yeah. for like, so how do you get booked and paid when you're young and you don't have the experience yet? Um, that's when you turn it on its head. Why should you get paid because you're young and you're inexperienced? I know a lot of people that um, 
I, I guarantee you they're younger than you two guys, and you guys look young. And they're uh, making a killing, turning it on its head, basically saying, I'm going to decode how you talk to a millennial mm. in speeches. And they have found their niche on how to have unique values. So you can't – insightful speakers aren't only guys that graying at the temple like I am with 50 <laughs> years of experience under the belt. I, I mean, uh, 40 years of, of life <laughs> under this belt. Uh, <laughs> They're, uh, they're of all walks of life. You can't, just like people I do one-on-one -on -one coaching for, the biggest barrier to success that I see is people undervalue themselves and the knowledge that they have. And then, you know, people will say, oh, wow, you, you make that in this in one keynote? I, I can never charge that. Says who? Right. Who, who creates value? What? Why did Mookie Betts for the Boston Red Sox sign today for $27 million for one year? <laughs> Why is it? Who says he's worth that? Yeah. Marketplace in him, and he believes it. Who says you, Colin, can't start speaking tomorrow, Tim, tomorrow, and command $5,000 for your first speech? Most people get $500 for this, but, but who says you can't? Mm -hmm. Only you say that. You don't know that. Now, okay, is it harder to get more and more, to get booked with big companies that are looking for seasoned years of experience? Yeah, of course, mm -hmm. but I don't think you would stand in front of a massive audience as a 22 year old person and say, let me tell you about what I've learned about leadership in a big, right. Right? Right. you're going to tailor your message. And there's a message there that audiences will buy. You just gotta, you just gotta find it. Got mm -hmm. it. Makes sense. Um, so Scott, unfortunately we're going to get kicked out of our space in about 15 minutes here. And I think we had just a few more things we wanted to get to. Um, but I, I, we really appreciate the insight on the keynote speaking because we're, like Tim said, we're avid speakers and writers. But so I'd kind of like to get into the writing and how uh, your relationship with Inc. became to be, uh, yep. how you started uh, writing articles for that, and um, just kind of get into that a little bit, how that developed. Yeah, you bet. Um, I, in that case, you know, there's lots of different places that you can write for. Some of them, require more seasoned experience and veteran business writers and others don't, you know, ink tends to like the more seasoned writers. Um, I think medium doesn't, you know, they just want a fresh voice, for example, uh, Huffington, but you know, every, everyone's different. My point is everyone's different. So, mm -hmm. you know, I can give you a, a sample of one, but in that case, it was from uh, a recommendation from someone at the time who was an ink writer. And then you have to go through a process and they say, all right, so what are your credentials? What are some topics you think you could write about? Why do you think you're the right person to talk about this? Tell us the range of topics that you would cover. Give us a sample article, that type of thing. And if your credentials are impressive enough and you fit a niche and a hole in the group of columnists that they want, they'll give you a crack. Mm -hmm. uh, and then if you pass the, you know, like sniff test of like, yeah, this guy can, he's going to hunt. And then you just go from there. Um, so it's, it's nothing more, it's not that sexy, you know, there's not a secret door that you go in on the side. Mm -hmm. um, if for any organization like that that's looking for contributors, you just go onto the website or you have a reference from someone who writes there and you ask, hey, can you give me an intro so I can at least explain myself to them? Um, they turn a lot of people down. I'm not going to lie. I don't want your, your listeners to think like it's easy. But you don't know until you ask. And if you have a unique voice, you've got a great chance. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Makes sense. Yeah, we uh, we each read your your Peloton article as well, <laughs> and and I had to bring it up. I had to because um, we we talk health and fitness and stuff. I'm in physical rehab and things, but we talked uh, about it on our podcast on Tuesday. Yeah, Tuesday, Tuesday's episode. I brought it up. I was like, 
we're going here. Uh, <laughs> so just kind of interested. Uh, I mean, we read the article, so we kind of know your thoughts. But um, what do you think Peloton maybe could have done differently uh, in terms of because I don't think they were being malicious by any means. Um, yeah, I don't. In, in your marketing uh, perspective, what do you think that they could and maybe should have done to present the message they were trying to do um, without somehow being offensive? <laughs> yeah, and I think offensive is all a relative term, right? Like you know, right. so let, let's 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 walk at the barking dog, right? Mm-hmm. I too, I almost didn't write that article, um, and for your listeners, you know, it's just a. Uh, maybe they already know you talked about it. you said on a prior show mm-hmm. so they'll know what I'm talking about right so yep, yep. yeah so I, I won't spend time on that but you know I I don't like all the haters in the world and I think we're an overly political and oversensitive universe mm-hmm. I marvel sometimes at the things people take offense to and I almost didn't write the Peloton article because of that like is it really that big of a deal <laughs> that this woman comes across to me as you know completely phony and off target and um you know, missing and, and many. And then I thought the marketer in me wants to spend time giving my opinion of why it's a bad ad rather than a social statement. So I tried to take the point of view is, you know, I don't think the world, the, the moon is going to crash into the sun here mm-hmm. because of uh, this, you know, stupid ad and that it's yet another example that, you know, the man doesn't get it and he's keeping people down. Nothing like that. I just looked at it from a pure marketing standpoint and said, I don't get it. Like, I don't get what they're trying to communicate in the ad to me. And I was very thrown off by execute the execution of it, that the, the woman seemed to be disproportionately happy relative to the benefit she was receiving from the bike. I don't underestimate the, po- the life-changing power of Peloton, but I thought they were presenting her as way too vulnerable, um, uh, way too craving of approval and that's where that irritated me a little bit because you know I come from a, a corporate world uh, where that's something that you know corporate world is guilty of man all the time you know mansplaining and and not valuing everybody including females but all diverse race across the board mm-hmm. so the, the the one slice of offense I took to it was I don't feel like they're they're, they're positioning the, the key actress in it in a positive light. They're making her seem too needy, and that really annoyed me. And then the communication of the message got lost to me in the execution, and I didn't understand what they were trying to, to say for me at all. If they were trying to sell the benefit of this is an accessible bike, I didn't really get that from it because it was in mm-hmm. a pretty high-end setting. Mm-hmm. If they were trying to sell you wouldn't believe the features in this bike. Um, I was distracted by that. They didn't spend any time on that. They showed a person, you know, a trainer yelling at her and said, hey, go, go, go. This is great. It's a very subtle mix of, oh, that's a bike where you can be on an online course? That's really cool. And it communicates the benefit of someone's going to be pushing me. I was so distracted by the poor execution of this woman that seemed disproportionately needy of this approval that I couldn't mm-hmm. absorb that message. So the execution got in the way of this strategy in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a hundred percent cool. If you guys don't agree with that, I totally get that. That's the nature of marketing, but that's where I was coming from. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like they, they focus too much on just the relationship of getting, getting the gift and like showing, like they just focus too much on that and less of why this bike is so great. Like they just focus too much on that part of it. Just the, the giving of the gift. And exactly. The gift. It, yeah. And I, I didn't, 
really get, did it take you a minute to figure out? I, I was like, wait a minute. So he gave her the bike. She's thanking him a year later. Is that what just happened? Yeah, and she I, took a video of it. Like, I don't even get it. I was yeah. like, Oh, I guess that's sweet. <laughs> yeah, you know, like, okay, they have a good relationship, I guess. Yeah, that's, all right. That, that's kind of how I saw. It. I was like, all right, that, that's it. Um, right. But yeah, no, I think we we're yeah interested to hear. We were interested to hear your marketing perspective on that and and what they could have done differently because yeah, we were. It was just lost to your. Yeah. I think the whole thing got lost in translation. Yeah. Um, Tim, you got anything else before we ask Scott our final question here? Yeah, I just. I picked out some of my favorite articles that I read from you. I just want to ask one of the questions. So the, the article about uh, seven habits to create multiple streams of income and financial independence. Talk oh, about, yeah, 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 yeah. You talk about uh, staying present in your network. So I guess I want to ask, like, what does it mean to stay present in your network? What are some, some good ways for people, whether they're in sales or they're in a profession where building extra relationships like outside of the regular context of like their work, what are some ways that they can utilize either LinkedIn, social media, staying present in their network? What does that mean? How can they develop a good network? Yeah, it's a, it's a great, uh, really great question. And I meant that in the context of people that want to monetize their expertise to become financially independent. Mm -hmm. So in other words, you know, I, I'm not talking about stay present in your network. I, honestly, I really wasn't talking about like people in the corporate world and mm -hmm. keep up on LinkedIn. I'm talking more about, okay, so what happens when you leave corporate? And that day-to-day -day network is gone and you're an entrepreneur and you want to, you know, so what do you do? Mm -hmm. How do you maintain the pre you know, presence with your network? You do it by providing value. Um, no one likes to be advertised to, especially not on Facebook, Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, Instagram, Twitter, any of those. No one really likes that. But if you provide value, you're staying present with your network. So for example, what I mean is one of the reasons why I write so much uh, for Inc., is not just for the monetary um, remuneration from that. It's because I can repost Inc. articles to my followers on LinkedIn, for example, and I can give them value that costs them nothing. And I stay connected to my network that way. And do I get promotional? I try not to. Every once in a while, I'll post a picture of me on stage at a keynote. Hey, just just gave a, a really fun keynote here in Dallas. Take a look at this unbelievable hotel. It's a subtle way of saying, hey, remember, I keynote for a living, right? I stayed present with my network. Mm -hmm. That, to be honest, it's promotion, right? The, the best way I can get away with it without feeling sick about myself. Mm -hmm. The other 90% of the time, I'm staying present with my network by providing value, whether it's free content. Oh, there's some more articles from Scott. There's a guidebook from Scott. There's a video. I have a video diary series that I do, um, a, a video, um, like short two-minute videos of advice I do called performance and another one called fulfillments. Uh, and then I also um, offer up to help uh, other people in their network. Hey, if, if you know, I know a lot of corporations, if you know people out there that are looking for a job, send me a note on LinkedIn and I, you know, I'll try to add value by connecting a person A with person B and just constantly providing value is the way to stay present. Mm -hmm. um, and the, when you can do it with visuals in a visual world, that's great. But sometimes it's just staying of value to them. Yeah. Great. I'm, I'm glad we were able to get, get that answer from you because that's, that's exactly yeah, that's huge. what I was wondering about. And for people Fantastic. like us who are in the, in the podcasting realm and we write articles, I freelance writing, like just being able to use your, your LinkedIn to, to stay present. Mm -hmm. I appreciate you answering that. So do you want yeah. to ask one more question? Yeah. So I guess our, our last question, because yeah, we're about to get, we always get kicked out of, we record at the library, so we're going to get kicked out in five minutes, but wanted to sneak one more in. Uh, 
we we're always interested how people want to be remembered when they're gone. You know, it's not always how much money you make. Like, how do you really want people to remember Scott Motts when he's gone? Yeah, super question. And, I, and I, by the way, I appreciate you ending with that because I'm a big fan of the legacy that we want to leave behind in life. It's like it's like an entire oh, someone's. Uh, there you go listeners at home <laughs> true yeah. to form they're getting kicked out um, <laughs> so you know, i'm a big fan of legacy and uh you know what do we want to leave behind so you know what i would say is i want to be remembered as um somebody who helped a lot of people become better versions of themselves i helped inspire somebody every single day and in fact i even have it on my license plate my license plate is the letters ins PRMSM1, which stands for Inspire Someone. Mm -hmm. And uh, I want that, I try to make that my mission every day. I hope I accomplish it with your listeners. I hope maybe I've accomplished it with you guys, even if just a sliver. And mostly, I just want to help people become better versions of themselves. And, and that's, that's why I left the corporate world, because I felt like my platform for making a difference could be bigger if I was able to, to do that um, outside of the corporate world. And, and that's why I'm doing what I'm doing and what I'm trying to leave behind. That's Great. awesome. Scott, we appreciate you coming on, sir. Uh, we, we know your time is valuable, so um, we really do appreciate it. Um, I know a lot of people will definitely get inspired by this. I know you've already helped Tim and I throughout this conversation, and it's been just under an hour, so we appreciate that as well. Um, yeah, so thank you. Man. This is awesome. You bet. Really appreciate it. If your listeners want to check me out, they can do so at scottmouts.com, S-C-O-T-T-M-A-U-T-Z.com. That's where they can find me. Perfect. Great. Yeah, we'll, we'll link everything in show notes. So we're going to blast you all over the place. Sounds good, man. Thanks. Thanks, guys, for having me on. I appreciate what you do. All right. Thank you. Thank Likewise. You. Enjoy your weekend, Scott. You too.